Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's madness. I think uh, there are some mad people in this world who want to stir up Muslims to create terror and use that as an excuse to uh, extend their military power. And uh, I just think that's not a very healthy way for mankind to go forward in the 21st century. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 17th of November, 2015, and I am honored to be joined on the line once again by a man who will need no introduction to my regular listeners and core audience, namely F. William Engdahl of WilliamEngdahl.com, a prolific author and commentator on world events, geopolitics, uh, oil, all of the things that are making the world turn one way or another. He is, of course, the author of A Century of War, uh, Full Spectrum Dominance, The Gods of Money, Target China, uh, Seeds of Destruction, Myth, Lies, and Oil War, Wars, and many other articles and, and pieces of information besides F. William Engdahl. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us today. Good to be with you, James. Well, of course, the news that is on everyone's mind at the moment is the recent events in Paris and how that ties into what is currently uh, taking place in Syria, a topic that I know you have been covering in great degree of detail for a number of years now, and how this ties into a lot of the subjects that you tend to cover in your work, including, of course, the oil wars uh, that uh, that this ties into with the disruption of the proposed Iran-Iraq-Syria gas oil pipeline. Let's talk about the real roots of what is happening in Syria and where this is likely to go, given the uh, events that are now taking place in Paris and elsewhere. I think the best way to look at what's going on today in Syria is to go back to the early years of George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld and company, Paul Wolfowitz, the author of the Wolfowitz Doctrine in 1992. There they laid out a plan called the Greater Middle East uh, Project, Greater, Greater Middle East Project of the 2003. It was presented to the G7 member countries, and there was huge protests from Saudi Arabia and other uh, Arab Gulf countries when, when the details of this began to leak out, because it was calling for a reorganization of the political map of the Middle East, something that hadn't been done since World War I, when the so-called allied victors carved up the Middle East uh, at their will and divided it among the French and among the British and, uh, and so forth. The project called for regime change in seven countries. This has been made public some time ago by General Wesley Clark. And those plans were in the Pentagon War, war Room desk uh, back in uh, 2001 after the World Trade Center and Pentagon attacks. So this goes back quite a ways, and it's tied into the neoconservatives, the so-called neocons, because they are con people. Uh, the strategy ties into the U.S. military-industrial complex. It ties into the 
American oligarchs, as I call them, the Rockefellers, the uh, uh, George Soroses, and, and whatnot. And it's a strategy to control Europe and China, ultimately, indirectly at that point to control Russia, which was then just uh, struggling to stay alive after the debacle of the Yeltsin decade. And the idea is to break up the monarchies, the established monarchies that they had created in, in World War I or after World War I with Sykes-Picot and other things, to break that up and to replace it essentially with their own trained Muslim Brotherhood networks. The Muslim Brotherhood, we should just take a second on that because it'll be detailed in, in my newest book, which comes out uh, toward the end of the year, The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy. And the hegemon is, of course, the United States using radicalized Arab terrorists or terrorists who can call themselves, uh, or Islamic, I should say, not Arab. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was created in 1926 in Egypt as a death cult. It wasn't created as some holy offshoot of uh, interpretation of the Quran. It was created by Hassan al-Banna, uh, a school teacher, a modest school teacher from the remote parts of Egypt, as a death cult. And uh, literally, it had assassin squads and so forth that uh, tried to assassinate uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser in the 50s and was banned. Well, they then were brought by the CIA in the 1950s into Saudi Arabia, where the monarchy there was convinced by Miles Copeland, the station chief in Cairo, that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood would be a very, very good addition to the ultra-conservative Wahhabite that uh, dominated the, the uh, Saudi mosques. So the fusion of political Islam with ultra-conservative ideology that uh, women should not be allowed to drive cars, that they have to wear burqas all the time, that they should always be accompanied by a male relative when they go out in public and so forth, and that there should be no idols to, to uh, blaspheme Allah. Well, that was combined with an aggressive, radical political agenda to take power, to create a, a, a sultanate, if you will, uh, that would have the political state of run by this ultra-conservative Islam. So that was the state of affairs. The Saudis had the money through the oil, so they were financing uh, the Muslim Brotherhood to set up uh, madrasas in places like Pakistan, in places like Afghanistan. This was in the 50s, the 60s, and so forth. And the CIA was always in the background and watching this and thinking of ways they could use it against uh, the Soviet Union back during the Cold War. Well, 1979, Zbigniew Brzezinski and the CIA get together and come up with a plan called Mujahideen. First, they provoked a Russian invasion, a Red Army invasion, a Soviet invasion, not invasion. They were brought in uh, on invitation of the pro-Moscow government because uh, Mujahideen had started creating terror acts and various other things were going on that the U.S. was fostering behind the scenes. So they brought the Soviets into a bear trap called Afghanistan. They 
trained the Mujahideen in Pakistan through the Pakistani intelligence, ISI. And they brought a Saudi, a rather wealthy Saudi from a family well tied to the Bush family and well tied to the Saudi monarchy and Saudi intelligence head called Osama bin Laden. And he was responsible for recruiting jihadists, in other words, terrorists, from all over the world, bringing them to uh, Afghanistan, or actually they brought them to Pakistan and then trained them and then sent them over the border. And that was the Mujahideen. It was a project of the CIA and Osama bin Laden's network. Well, after 10 years and ultimately the Red Army left Afghanistan, that was a huge defeat. That was the Vietnam of, of the Soviet Union. They were exhausted financially and, and militarily. The CIA then said, okay, Soviet Union a couple of years later collapsed. That was 89, so 90, 91. Yeltsin becomes president of the Russian Federation. The CIA project, by the way, was Yeltsin. And the CIA uh, air freights the leading uh, Mujahideen, Saudis and others, into Chechnya, where a Soviet-era pipeline went from Baku, Azerbaijan in the Caspian Sea, with oil of Baku up through Russia, and from there it can go on to Western Europe and the world markets as, as Russian oil. Well, Washington wanted a different pipeline. They wanted British Petroleum, Atlantic Richfield, the American and British oil companies to control the oil of Baku. They made a coup in Azerbaijan so that a, a, a pro-American puppet, the uh, Aliyev uh, family, the father and then later the son, uh, that they would route the oil through a Baku-Tbilisi-Chehan pipeline into Chehan in Turkey on the Turkish coast. And then from there, onto the world market. So they would rob the, uh, the Russian Federation of the control over that pipeline. That was called the Chechen Wars of the early 90s. At that point, Russia was in no shape to, uh, to do much about it. It was a debacle. That was the CIA's Muslim Brotherhood project in Chechnya. The same time, in the 90s, they brought them into Bosnia to make jihad against the Serbs in the Bosnian or in the Yugoslav civil war that the United States orchestrated from behind the scenes, another one of these lead from behind uh, debacles. And you can just trace the thing right on down to the creation in Iraq by General David Petraeus, a, a very nasty fellow, of the terror squads that became the Al-Qaeda in Iraq and later morphed into something called conveniently ISIS at first. This is an interesting thing. It was called the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Then a few, a couple of uh, Israeli journalists pointed out on a television interview that the abbreviation for the Israeli Mossad used in communications with Western intelligence was precisely the Israeli Secret Intelligence Service, ISIS. So suddenly, without warning, the name got shortened to IS, 
the Islamic State. Well, to be fair, it's been known by dozens of different Arabic names, and yeah. uh, which of course have their own Arabic uh, uh, alliterations, not uh, not the abbreviation used in English. But I, I, that is a kind of funny, uh, if not particularly significant, piece of information. But just to back up the historical parallels that you're drawing there with, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood, from whose ranks, of course, sprang Ayman al-Zawahiri, rounded up after the uh, Sadat assassination, who ended up, of course, becoming Osama bin Laden's right-hand man, currently heading al-Qaeda, which it became, which, of course, fostered al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became ISIS. The parallels are many, and, of course, Western intelligence is in every single one of those stages of uh, the development of this, the rise of this, these radical terror groups. Um, I guess this brings us to the question specifically in Syria, what if this is a, a sort of terrorist proxy army used by Western intelligence, what is it being used for specifically in Syria? Well, in Syria, you have a number of complicating factors. One is traditionally the Middle East, the Arab Middle East was run by three uh, groups, Egypt, Mubarak, Syria, the al-Assad family, and Saudi Arabia. Well, Mubarak was gone in a U.S. color revolution called the uh, Arab Spring. Then they put a Muslim Brotherhood puppet in there named Mohammed Morsi. He didn't last so long, but uh, that was the U.S. strategy. They were quite upset when the uh, al-Sisi coup took place a couple of years ago. And Syria has this leading stabilizing role in the Middle East historically. You have Alawite uh, Islam living side by side with Sunni Islam, with uh, Shia Islam, and with, with Christians uh, in Syria for centuries. So you had this uh, multicultural, multi-religious uh, state. And the other complicating factor is its geopolitical uh, geography, where it is. It lies on a route, one of its neighbors is Iraq, of course, and Iraq's neighbor is Iran. So Iran, having part of the largest gas field in the world, larger than anything even in Siberia, called the North Pars Field, Iran was in negotiations with Iraq and with Syria, Bashar al-Assad, in 2009-2010, to build, as you referenced, the Iran-Iraq-Syria gas pipeline that would bring Iranian gas into the European market ultimately, through Lebanon or through Syrian ports. Well, before that happened, in 2009, the Emir of Qatar came to Damascus to talk with Bashar al-Assad and proposed an alternative gas pipeline because the other half of that Persian Gulf gas field happens to be in the territorial waters of none other than Qatar, where Doha, the U.S. military base for the region, is uh, also conveniently located. And the Qataris wanted to get a gas pipeline going from Saudi Arabia up into Syria and from there on onto the European markets. Bashar al-Assad said, no, I respect the relationship between Syria and Russia, and we have our negotiations with Gazprom on anything having to do with gas, and we don't want to get involved. Well, after that, all hell broke loose in Syria. Saudi money, Qatari money, Gulf Arab money generally 
was financing Sunni groups to make war on the Alawite uh, Bashar al-Assad. By the way, uh, al-Assad's wife happens to be a Sunni Muslim. That gives you an indication that this is uh, not a religious fanaticism in, in Bashar's case at all. The, uh, excuse me, the United States, because of this agenda of, of Muslim Brotherhood regimes in all these key places in the Middle East, the Arab Spring agenda, wanted to get rid of Bashar al-Assad because he was a definite thorn in, in the way. Russia has a military base in, in uh, Tarsus on the coast, Mediterranean coast, the only one on the, on the Mediterranean. And they decided to dig in their heels and defend the Assad government. Well, it's evolved from there. There's a complicating factor that ties in directly to the Paris bombings, I think. And that is the fact that Alain Juppé and originally Sarkozy and his top military advisor and others in the French establishment had a fantasy about a Sykes-Picot number two or Sykes-Picot Mach two, where France would become again a neo-colonial power in the Middle East, regain a redrawn Syria and regain Lebanon and that they were behind the calls to get rid of Bashar al-Assad most vehemently. They were agitating, even when the U.S. backed away from this, Obama backed away from this, and even when uh, the British backed away from the same thing and realized that uh, it was getting far too complicated with Russia and China both standing in the way. The French... Uh, been having a talent for geopolitical cock-ups in history. If you look at World War I, if you look at the occupation of the Ruhr in 1923, uh, if you look at the uh, job they did in, in 1931 to bankrupt the Kreditanstalt in Vienna that led to the collapse of the, of the world financial system in World War II, well, they are fanatical on this agenda, it seems. And uh, now, 24 hours, with incredible alacrity, incredible speed, the Hollande government in, in Paris has started a bombing war in Syria. Of course, they don't have permission of the legitimate, legitimate government of Syria to come in and bomb it. They're just doing it. So uh, it's, it's a very, very complex situation. Russia and China both have dug their heels in on this. So Russia, Putin's speech at the UN General Assembly in September laid it out quite clearly that UN charter has certain stipulations for when countries can be uh, uh, have other military attack them and uh, or attack their, their territories and the, that what uh, Russia is doing is in accordance with the UN charter they were invited by the legitimate elected government of Assad to help them because the ISIS was really making headways. It seems, and this is exposed by the uh, uh, Russian bombing campaign since end of September, that 13 or 15 months of U.S. Uh, strategic bombing against ISIS only served the curious purpose of expanding the territory that ISIS controlled. So it led... and. Uh, 
a U.S. general was forced to admit in congressional testimony uh, a few weeks back that uh, for a half a million, half a billion dollars or several hundred million dollars of training of so-called moderate opposition, the uh, U.S. can only account for four to five trained uh, opposition soldiers that are still working with the, with the U.S. And, uh, well, and what is the number one source of independent income, independent from the Gulf states for ISIS? Oil, of course. ISIS is the oil, yes. yeah. And Erdogan's son is uh, getting the oil out through Turkey. Yes. So that yes. gives you more. Uh, exactly, nice. through, through uh, uh, networks that were established even during the war, but uh, specifically in the last yeah. couple of years. Uh, yeah. Just to further underscore the point of France's culpability in this is the uh, the point that they, uh, in 2014, experienced their best year for arms exports in the last 15 years. The arms exports rose 18%. Their number one customer, of course, Saudi Arabia, with Qatar not far behind. So there, again, uh, we know that Saudi Arabia and Qatar have been directly responsible for funding the the rebels, the moderate rebels, ha ha ha, in Syria. And of course, this ultimately... Well, leads... Exactly. I mean, that's okay. that's political blather. Um, so, of course, that leads to what we saw in Paris uh, just over the weekend. And, and all of this seems connected in that historical continuity that we've been drawing for, uh, for through this conversation. So let's extend this outward from here. Where do you see this happening? Where do you see this going, given what we've seen with Russia's intervention in, in recent months and now this this new uh, push for intervention? Yes. the I think the Paris bombing, I wouldn't even call it a false flag, I would call it a no-flag attempt to whip up public opinion to support a military assault on Syria and boots on the ground, French boots and whatever other boots they can uh, persuade to come with them. The, I've spoken to a veteran uh, camera journalist, photographer, who was sent uh, by one of the international networks to go to Paris immediately within hours of the bombing attacks. And he told me he was there as a cameraman covering the Chechen terror he was there as a cameraman covering the Beslan school massacre. He was there as a cameraman uh, in all the war situations of the last 20-some years. So he has quite a bit of experience in, in covering bombings and things like that. And he said this was the most bizarre scene of, of, of a terror attack that he'd ever uh, tried to photograph. He showed me a picture, and it was one, one of the restaurants where supposedly, you know, many people were shot with Kalashnikovs from these terror, masked terrorists. And all he was allowed to see by the special police, security police, was to stand behind a row of carefully placed chairs, you know, touching each other with backs. Uh, and then through the upper part of that, you couldn't uh, photograph down through the upper part, all you could see were these uniformed police moving around, so looking very policey. And at one point, they pull up a cloth that had something that looked like blood on it, but you never could see a body. All of the pictures on the internet that I've been able to find, uh, you don't see anything. And there are records of 
the football, the German football team, which was inside the stadium when these bombs were supposedly going off, tweeting back and forth to their family or friends uh, back in Germany or wherever throughout the whole course of the events. And there's no mention, oh my God, I just heard an explosion. There's not one word of that until after it was announced that uh, there was this bomb attack. And then they referred to that, but they didn't know what was going on. So they were told to stay in the stadium overnight for security. So the whole thing begins to stink to high heaven. Hmm. Are you suggesting that people didn't die in Paris? I don't know who died or who didn't die. I'm suggesting that perhaps this was not the greatest terrorist attack in French history. Of course, they go back to the Algerian Civil War and various other things where they had, had their share of that. And more and more, my gut feeling or feminine intuition, if you want to call it, tells me that, that this was engineered to whip up hysteria for a French military. And how are you going to deal with something like six of these terrorists uh, were French nationals living in France and Belgium. So how are you going to deal with that by bombing uh, a site in Syria if you have all of these sleeper cells uh, dispersed around France or around And of Europe? course, when this inevitably turns towards the toppling of Assad, as it will, why would the toppling of Assad, who has been one of the prime forces fighting ISIS, be yeah. helpful in getting rid of ISIS? It makes no sense on its face, but this well, is the that's logic the, that's being That's the brilliance addressed. of the French strategy, it seems to be. Juppé and others. So uh, it's madness. I think uh, there are some mad people in this world who want to stir up Muslims to create terror and use that as an excuse to uh, extend their military power. And uh, I just think that's not a very healthy way for mankind to go forward in the 21st century. Well, I think we can all agree on that. And again, regardless of what happened in Paris or how it happened, it is certainly being used to that agenda, not only to extend the war agenda in Syria, but also to extend the war on terror home front with uh, now Holland calling for amendments to the Constitution to allow for more sweeping uh, police powers. So I think we know, unfortunately, how this story unfolds as we saw it unfold in America 15 years ago. There's there's one uh, additional aspect to this the how you asked how it would unfold in my view at this point judging from the talks that took place at the g20 meeting in antalya turkey yesterday where you had barack obama and vladimir putin sitting down for intensive discussion pictures of them and and uh, they were they were serious discussions they weren't these pictures of two two kids uh, you know turning away from looking at each other that we had two years ago or so and you had discussions between Putin and Erdogan, Putin and the king of Saudi Arabia. Uh, pretty much everyone wanted to talk with Putin about, about Syria. And this does not sound like the other members of NATO are chomping at the bit to join France on the ground. France, Hollande is calling for other countries to help because we don't have enough troops to do it alone. And so far, nobody has stepped up to the plate. I would watch that very closely because I think France may find itself out on a limb that's beginning to crack. Well, this is obviously a developing story. Um, There's obviously a lot more information that's coming out as we speak and will continue to do so. So people can follow your work at williamangdahl.com. I know you write for a number of publications, including the New Eastern Outlook, but all of your articles and books can be found there. So we'll include that link, of course, in the show notes for this interview. William Engdahl, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.